1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator ten for ten percent off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts Max Linsky and Evan Raleph. Good morning, Aaron. Hey guys, I'm so happy to see you. Me too. I'm I'm so happy. Uh, I have a great guest for you, Max. I know who the guest is, and I'm excited about it. I believe you are a subscriber to our guest this week's newsletter. Our guest is Casey Johnston. She's written for many, many publications over the years. She's written about technology. Uh, I think she was most recently at Vice, where she had a column called Ask a Swole Woman, which she has now taken to the Substack environment and is uh, running as her own newsletter, which is called She's a Beast. I've been wanting to talk to someone about what running one of these newsletters is really like and what happens when your life kind of becomes subsumed in your newsletter identity. In her case, she's sort of, uh, I don't think she would self-describe this way, but has become known as a fitness influencer. She writes a lot about weightlifting and strength training stuff. I don't know that I would think of her as a fitness influencer, but she does influence my fitness. At least my thinking about fitness. I don't actually lift weights, but... Casey makes me want to and think it's like possible to. The important part is thinking about it. (laughs) Yeah, that's how you get there. You just got every day, man. All it takes is 10 minutes of thinking about it. (laughs) We are brought to you in partnership with Vox Media. They help us make the show. Thanks, Vox. And now here's Aaron with Casey Johnston. Hello and welcome, Casey Johnston.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for bearing with my most embarrassing technical failure of this uh, of this long form year.
2: I mean, no one can see this, but you have so many you have many knobs behind you, more knobs than I've ever seen on s- boards and switches. And like, I can only ima- I can barely manage my own audio setup, and it's like two things. So. All of
0: those things are unplugged <laughs> and are purely for show. <laughs> um, well, they impress me? So I was excited to talk to you actually because. You have a Substack. Tell us the name of the Substack.
2: So okay, my Substack is called She's a Beast. It jumps off of a column that I've been writing for five years called Ask a Swole Woman that originated on the hairpin, which is part of the all, and that has come with me between a few different publications. And now it now it lives within this newsletter.
0: I uh, I want to get there, but perhaps we can uh, rewind to how did you get into writing in the first place? Where are you from? Go all the way back.
2: Okay. So I liked writing when I was a kid and I liked reading books and all of this stuff. And everyone was like, you can't do that for a living. And I was like, okay, makes sense to me. So I went to engineering school and it was very hard and... <laughs> as you can maybe imagine. It was very overwhelming. And I still wanted to do writing, but there's zero opportunity to do that in an engineering program. Like you have no electives, you have no space to move your classes around. You're just doing problem sets all of the time. So I decided I would instead get internships in writing. So I worked for college humor back in the day. I worked for Mental Floss, uh, that unofficial Apple weblog, eventually Ars Technica. Um, And then when I graduated, it was the recession had just started and I could not get a job in my ostensible field. I applied for, I don't even know, it had to be over a hundred jobs over the course of like a year and a half. And it was just, theres it was a no-go. So I was bartending, and I was I kept freelancing for some of the places I didn't at, and was pitching other places. And eventually, Ars Technica needed somebody to cover. It was sort of the heyday of um, the iPhone had been out for a couple of years. Lots of different Android phones and tablets and all of this stuff was starting to come out, and they wanted somebody to review those things. And that eventually became a full time job, and then that became being in media, and I you know haven't haven't left since then.
0: When you were in engineering school before you found out that you would be applying to 100 jobs and not get them, what what were you picturing your life as an engineer like are we talking about like a software engineer or like a bridges and dams engineer?
2: I think I was looking more at the bridges and dams end of things. I mean, I liked science and I liked, you know, I took AP physics and that seemed like a nice a nice path for me. So, I ended up taking a bunch of different things and majoring in one of the softer majors available, which was applied physics, because my dad died a semester into college, and i that's, like, interrupted my whole college cycle. And, like, I would have had to do, I think, an extra year of school in order to accommodate a more rigid program. So I ended up doing this more flexible one. And I think that worked out. I got to do a lot of – like, I took economics – astrophysics, different kinds of math. It was, it was like, as interesting as I think engineering school could be to somebody like me who didn't end up actually wanting to be an engineer really at all.
0: Well, I was just wondering like, like as a young person coming in covering the Androids and the Apples of the world, like, like what was your perspective there? Like did, did the content even matter or was it like kind of a job?
2: I think I came at it like, I mean, it was it was like a hot area. There was a lot going on. It was a rapid area of development. And it was, I don't think it felt perfectly clear, but we were on the verge of these, you know, phones becoming everything to us, and or at least lots and lots of different things, more than phones. So it felt important, I guess, to figure out what that thing that we are, always holding on to should look like and what it should do. And I had, um, I think I have a high sort of comparative evaluative instinct maybe. Like I went on to work for Wirecutter later, which the whole goal of Wirecutter is find the best whatever. So it was appealing to me to get an opportunity to actually look at all of these things and like handle them and use them and see which ones were good and which ones were bad. I so like I really enjoyed it. It was not maybe not the most like fulfilling creative thing I've ever done, but I think I've since learned I'm also like not that creative of a person. I do like kind of analyzing stuff. So that was um that was stimulating to me and I think it was a good way of practicing what I wanted to do on like a fairly uh clearly defined area subject.
0: Yeah. I mean, that that's actually something I wanted to talk about across like all of your writing. I've been following your writing for like, I don't know, 10 years now.
2: Wow. That's so nice. I had no idea. And it's just out
0: there. (laughs) You have like a uh, like a methodological approach to things like for you. Like, what have you learned about showing your work in your writing? It's certainly like something that's a big part of your weightlifting uh, oeuvre.
2: (laughs) I mean, I think I generally in life come from a very insecure place. So I really will bend over backward to show my work about stuff. And I think it comes from fearing that what I have, to like my sort of opinion on its own is not good enough. I need like the data. But also I do come at it as somebody who is very frustrated by marketing speak like everyone talking about a not new thing as if it's new is just like it drives me insane. I just I I want to know the truth. <laughs> so I I think that plays into it as well. That I think I want to figure out what's real. I don't I don't like the what do we call it? Sort of they have this in politics writing where it's like covering the horse race. You're not really covering like whether a political opinion is morally bankrupt or ethically questionable, you're just sort of like, this is the opinion of the politician, how is it gonna play with the politician's constituency? I see a lot of that in tech coverage where it's like sort of about the horse race and less about the truths about (laughs) stuff. Or like, maybe there's not truths, but what gets at the needs that people have from these things?
0: You know, weightlifting is a thing that I could say I lift weights in any manner. And some guy would jump out of the comments section and be like, you're doing it wrong. And I feel like in your writing, you do a good job of like saying like, well, actually there's different people who are coming to weightlifting from different places. When you're in that research mode, like how do you deal with all of these kind of strong data perspectives and and cook that into something that an audience can understand?
2: I think I hear I hear all of these voices that are all very strong within this area as well. There's a lot of hurt and feeling to go around about how people feel about their bodies, and how they feel about exercise, and how they feel about food, and it's all very it's it's like very strong and very personal. So it's hard to wade in on the kind of more data-driven part of it or the science-driven part of it without hurting somebody's feelings. I think, like, I feel kind of surprised in a way that I don't rub more people the wrong way, even when I'm trying to be pretty careful about it. But I sort of want to make as many people happy as possible. And I'm not in it as much to talk about myself and my own emotional perspective, which is interesting because an increasing number of people are referring to me, not to toot my own horn, but like people are calling me a fitness influencer. And I'm like, I don't know if that's what I am, but maybe I guess we don't have like another. No one writes about fitness Really, you know, other than uh, like influencers make content about fitness stuff, but not, I don't know, fitness artists. You have, but you have like politics writers. I guess you have politics influencers.
0: I, th- I think they call themselves lobbyists. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you actually, you talked on, you touched on something there that, that, that caught me about, you know, how potentially like more contrarian writing, you know, might do better on the internet. Did you hit a certain point in time where you kind of said like, well, I I know what kinds of writing will succeed uh, on the internet, and I may or may not want to do that kind of writing?
2: Yeah, I think I've hit that point in the last couple of years. I mean, I don't think I have all the answers. But yeah, I've sort of seen strategy-wise, just speaking very broadly about publications in general, not just places that I've worked, but like places that my friends have worked, places that you read about in CJR, whatever the case is, that they tend to zero in on the aspects of content that they can kind of quantify. And that's not always what makes it successful. And a lot of times the things that make it successful are stuff that does not show up in the length of the headline, (laughs) keywords in the URL, the placement of links in the first paragraph. I mean, we see this in other realms, too. It's kind of like, you can quantify great things about a basketball player, but does that entirely tell you why, when they're playing, one player always seems to be kind of getting the best of everybody, even if he's not statistically the best player out there? Or just, like, they're more fun to watch. It's like Katie Weaver's mozzarella stick appetizer story from... Gawker from, I think that was like 2014. It's like And it's like, what made that, that story did like over a million page views. What made it successful? It was not the mozzarella sticks. It was not TGI Fridays. It was not the appetizer promotion. It wasn't really anything about who Katie was specifically. It was because she wrote a really good piece. The writing was good and it was fun to read. And that's where I think we're not kind of making the connection at
0: all. It sort of reminds me when everyone was like, Upworthy, they've got the secret code. Like, I don't know how they do it, but they're turning huge traffic. And then, you know, a few other places reverse engineered, like, what stories performed on Upworthy. So now when everyone has each other's sauce, it almost seems like kind of like a waste of time to be like in the, in the like sauce development industry, because what if you figure out some like go-to technique... It's just going to it's just going to be everywhere anyway. You you actually have to keep creating new ideas.
2: There's kind of a element of you can engineer this but at what cost? Like that's just not the kind of work that I want to be doing. I've been thinking about it lately more like how should I put this? Like I feel more comfortable lately with a sort of like beloved local restaurant level of success. I feel like the upworthy sort of style of success is maybe like Chipotle. What's nice about Substack is that we've come to this place that I hope lasts, but who knows, that we can have this sort of local restaurant relationship with writers or I can have that with readers where I don't have to be part of this like big machine in order to do something that I really like and we don't have to kind of filter everything up and down through this SEO optimization. Is it plucking all of the right precise emotional beats that dictate success? I can just sort of do what it is that I do, even if it's not entirely legible to a uh, media operation. <laughs> it doesn't need to be. Like I think I think a lot of them really like to drill down on beats and precise sort of story structures that are successful depending on the outlet. But I think while that stuff can be valuable, I think we lose a lot in the course of that process that doesn't necessarily recreate what it is that people love about a lot of (laughs) different articles.
1: Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the US designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
0: You have a a Discord associated with your Substack, is that correct?
2: That's correct, yes.
0: Okay, I have some nuts and bolts questions because the only Discords I've ever been are for like weird like shitcoin cryptocurrency so i i don't know what like a healthy discord really looks like but like what are people talking about in your discord
2: yeah i mean the discord man when did i start it it was roughly a year ago and i made it because sort of the central currency of my strength training related presence has been advice and sort of instruction broadly not always brass tacks of how do I do a deadlift necessarily, but like, I'm scared of the gym. How do I become not scared of the gym? And I I think I reached a point where I was like, I'm not the only sort of source of this information and I feel like a lot of these people would like to talk to each other. So the gist of it, the, the spirit of the discussion is often people trying to feel their way with getting into lifting and sometimes the more intermediate or advanced aspects of lifting. And then, you know, they'll often ask a question or share a pair of leggings that they like that they just got or a snack that they just tried or a high protein recipe or a macro tracking app. And they'll kind of all discuss about what what's like, oh, why do you like that one? Or this is what I do when... I feel like my calves are tight or this is how I warm up for lifting and they all just kind of resource share I think is the the primary dynamic of it. Why what are what are crypto
0: No, you don't want to know. You don't. Know. You, you don't want to know. Don't go down that road. So oh. so are you expected to be a constant presence in the Discord? Like how many hours a day do are you checking the Discord?
2: It's Interesting, because for a long time it was it was just open, and I appointed some mods in just in the interest. I was like, this is like zero obligation. I just you guys seem to be in here a fair amount, and in case anyone decides to come in here and like be a jerk, would like to have somebody be able to ban them because I can't I can't be eyes on this all of the time, and that's never happened, <laughs> not even close. So I am in it. I think I check in on it generally once or twice a day. I think it probably averages out to that. And I'll kind of jump in on different discussions if there's something to say or emoji react to the things that people are saying. And that's kind of it. Like, it's pretty lively. I often wonder if I should be doing more kind of deliberate programming. I feel like more... Bigger successful Discords seem to do activities, but I haven't even really figured out what they are. I'm kind of like I've like looked at other Discords being like, okay. Even just trying to figure out what people might be expecting from this and then not not getting. But I think it's going well enough as it is just being a resource for people to the main one of the main things I wanted was a place for people to be able to post what we call form checks. In lifting, where they just film themselves doing a lift and say, like, hey, how does my form look? Do Am I, like, doing this completely wrong? And someone with a basic understanding of the lift can be, like, yes or no, and here's why. And that's, like, something that can be very—there's there's places you can do that online. There's, like, different subreddits and stuff, but the communities are much bigger. I think this is a little bit less intimidating because it's not as many people. And then I can also weigh in. Hopefully they want to hear from me as much as anybody else. So that's really nice, too.
0: When I look at your life, you're lifting weights. You're, like, writing the newsletter about uh, lifting weights. You're being the mod in the Discord. It's a lot of your, like, life that's all kind of, like, packed into, like, one cube. Do you feel like you are making decisions in your life based on... Well, my business is this. So, like, I, you know, I need to do this in my personal life so I can write about it or whatever. Is there any sort of divide between this writing project and like who you are as a a person right now?
2: I would not say that I have, like, I think some people really cultivate a persona around this stuff. I don't do that, but it's also not like I'm a, full-on lifestyle influencer where it's like experience every minute of my day with me and every aspect of my life like even my sort of lifting my Instagram that's related to this newsletter I would say is almost entirely focused on the lifts that I lift the foods that I eat and like sometimes assorted Resting, you might say, things that I'm doing, TV that I'm watching. That's kind of it. It's not, the, I know that does not encompass me as a person. But also it's like, it hasn't been that long that I've been doing this as a newsletter that's a little bit bigger scope than just the advice column, which was a lot of work, but it was only every other week. So I don't really know what my kind of next career step is. I sort of think of myself as still a writer. That's that's really, I don't I'm not thinking of myself as like okay, I'm a fitness influencer and that I'm building my whole sort of all of my working hours and strategizing entirely around that. It's like I really like writing about this stuff. I like posting about lifting and talking to people about lifting. And I kind of like, honestly, not having a really aggressive, sweaty strategy all around it. And that's, to me, kind of the dream that I can I can do this in a way that feels um, comfortable and hopefully accessible and, I hate to say real, but like authentic and not like I'm trying to um, game anybody into what it is that I'm doing. It's like... I want to be authentic about it. These are lame words, but I'm like, I, I see a window here with this newsletter stuff that I think it has been kind of a bloodletting of media generally where that we have all of these kind of samey feeling publications that are very focused on the grittier metric parts of doing content online. And there's just not a lot of heart to it. And I kind of want to protect that about what I'm doing now and not make it this like really intense thing. (laughs) Like I want it to be good. This is a kind of its own hard balance to strike is that I want it to be good and I want it to be successful. I want people to like it, but I also don't, I think overthinking that can become its own problem. But I've liked substacks so far that are a little bit more off the cuff and not trying to Be something so aggressively, and just kind of people writing about what they're interested in because they're interested in it. We've lost so much of that, I think, in the last like five years.
0: For you, what you're writing about does not have any sort of a news cycle. There's like very little breaking news associated with it. Do you ever wonder if you're going to like run out of stuff to write about and like? How do you make the decision every week out of all the possible things you could write about this newsletter is going to be about this?
2: I feel like I have run out of stuff to write about so many t- several times. I ran out of stuff to write about like t- 3 4 years ago in a way. I do think while there's not the kind of breathless news cycle around this stuff in the mainstream There is there is evolving knowledge about different aspects of fitness and exercise and health and how the foods that we eat. It's like and people do want to talk about and read about this stuff, but it's not taken as seriously. We don't have bodies of fitness or health reporters out there. It's like how many health reporters does The New York Times have versus like politics and how many people are like worried about their weight not that they should be and not that that's like the right way of going about things but how many people it's on how many people's minds versus how many people like think about the governor race I know I know a lot of people who are very invested in that but I think there's a little bit of an imbalance there for how much kind of mind share these things have relatively I think we push it down a little bit because it feels it's like we have a lot of shame about that part of life as well. And that's like the thing that I think about the role of that and how we talk about it, how much we talk about it. And I think that's a bit of a roadblock in, in in the breakthrough of whether there's a conversation about it. I mean, I see very active conversations about diet stuff like keto, weight loss. There's, I think there have been a lot of blockbuster articles about obesity and like biggest loser in the last couple of years. And there was Adele's weight loss. There was Kumail Nanjiani's big body reveal. I mean, that was a couple of years ago now, I think. God, was that December 2019? It
0: was for a movie that's coming out now. So Mm -hmm. the swole is back in the news cycle, but those gains are actually from 2019. That's correct.
2: Uh, Yes, right. So I see uh, there's a very successful YouTube channel that, shows up in my I don't know what you call it side rail all of the time that's basically like periodic updates on or not even updates but sort of the latest celebrity in the news who maybe looks a little bit too jacked and like whether this guy thinks they're taking steroids or not and those videos get like half a million views is that changing the world maybe not but I think there's it's. I think it's a bit of an awareness thing. I think there is there is a world out there where where there's a lot of churn in this conversation, but it's not in the New York Times necessarily, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. And And something I think you do really well is write something that would be interesting to people who are actually along their fitness journey, but also interesting to people like me who are sitting here like, day one, tomorrow, you know? And so I'm curious, like, how you do that, how you think about that. Do you get feedback from people on those issues?
2: I didn't think about this for a really long time, and I was just sort of shooting from the hip for a long time of, like, people would send me questions and I would be like, that's interesting to me and I think I know the answer and I sort of went through it about this question at one point and I want to explain it to you. I totally understand what you mean about you can get to a point with some subjects where the kind of beginner level of it is no longer interesting to you, not interesting enough that you want to like keep explaining it to other people. And I think a lot of fitness people get to that point where they're like posting weekly workouts are like 17 new moves for huge biceps. And it's like, what's interesting about that is that's content for somebody who is pretty advanced several years into their like fitness journey. It's not really for beginners. Beginners will benefit from something very, very different. But people experience that content as if they're like, oh, I've never worked out before in my life. I should do 17 different moves for my biceps. And that that gets so lost in translation, I guess, all of the time. But if you're asking how I stay focused on beginner stuff for myself, I think I don't find maybe it's that I don't find the like advanced levels of this that interesting. I don't find greatness that interesting <laughs> when it comes to exercise and lifting weights. It's cool when somebody is like really can like lift a lot of weight. I'm happy for them, but I've really gotten into the sort of daily habit of it versus trying to be great at it myself. I think maybe I, I, like, I was kind of going through that at one point a few years ago, only a couple of years into it. It's like, you don't really know what your potential is. It's like, am I going to be the strongest person alive or am I mediocre? Or you kind of, you only see people who go from bad to like really, really good because those are the people who stay in it and those are the people who get a lot of attention. And when I didn't, when that didn't happen for me, I think I was a little bit lost for a while because I was like, okay, what's my offering here? I'm not actually good at this. I'm never going to be that strong. And then I was kind of like, actually my offering is that this, this stuck for me. And the number one question that I get from people is like, how did you get started with lifting and how did you keep going? And I was like, I'm the perfect person to answer this question because I keep going in the face of not being good at it at all. I have no ambition driving me in this direction at all. My only ambition is to just sort of like keep my body functional and like I like the task of lifting. I enjoy it as a workout, not every single day to the max, but way more like I was a runner for several years. That was bad every day. (laughs) Did not want to do it every day. I think eventually I got to kind of a Stockholm Syndrome point with it, but it was never like the best part of my day. Lifting is frequently the best part of my day now. Not always. So I think that's kind of what keeps me in that realm of wanting to help people get into it and stay with it is that that's kind of where i am myself. I have no greatness in me. I have the well, i mean if you wanted to call greatness just like sticking with something then in the face of not being good at it that's what i do. <laughs> so i can kind of try and explain that to other people, i guess.
0: There's got to be some corollary to the to the sort of daily practice of writing. I mean, i think that there's a, a bit of a bias towards uh, I'll just name the long form format and the idea that people cut their teeth, you know, doing blog posts and then get assigned features and then you use your features to get a book and that your cadence gets slower and slower over time. And you're someone who writes a lot, who writes every week. You uh, do you write every day, do you open open up the browser every day and and put words down?
2: I would say at this point, yes, I do. Sort of in in this newsletter phase, I'm doing some kind of writing every day. But I'm also working on this book proposal. I'm working on releasing a beginner guide to get people into lifting weights, like a couch to barbell system. And that's a lot of writing, and I'm almost done with that. And then I have my newsletter. So it's like, yes, now I am writing every day. I'm actually trying to pull back a little from the place of thinking of Writing like you're shoveling rocks and dirt into a wheelbarrow, sort of thing. That can be, that can take some of the like pressure of greatness off, but it also takes a lot of the fun out of it. So I think you, I'm trying to find a balance between like having fun with writing and also like normalizing the task that writing is. And it's not always kind of like with lifting or exercise in general. I mean, like, Hiroki Murakami, shout out. It's not about having inspiration to do it every day. I mean, like, there's so many writers who have said this. It's not about inspiration or motivation. It's like, you do it whether you (laughs) want to or not. Some days are good, some days are bad. And that's... And the other thing is, not just that, but there's an aspect to it of not expecting to be good at something or removing the expectation of being good at it helps a lot with getting it done every day i think and that's that's helped with lifting that i'm not i don't i don't put a lot of pressure on the accomplishment aspect of it it's just sort of getting out and doing it sometimes i think about this this book proposal that i'm working on is like the good version is buried under like all of this bad quote-unquote writing that I have to do and get through and kind of chip away at and like if I just sort of keep going it's down there somewhere and that's sort of true of lifting and having a functional body also that like it's kind of you can't go in expecting to like be good at the gym you're gonna be bad at it and that's okay you have to kind of work through that part before you feel comfortable and like decently competent at what you're doing and that's okay that's very that's normal that doesn't mean that you're not getting anything out of that process of digging down through the levels of mediocrity or badness
1: this episode is brought to you by visit williamsburg
0: I think that you're pretty good at writing in the voice of the person I've been talking to. Do you have, like, have you learned anything about that? Because I think that's one of the hardest things for young writers to do, is to write the way they might have a conversation or or explain something verbally. It's like, it seems easy, it's not easy. What have you learned about that over time?
2: Man, I wish I had a better answer to this because I would say... I've never felt like a worse writer than right now when I'm trying to sort of, like, work... I keep bringing up this book proposal, but it's, like, working on, like, a sort of big-picture narrative of, like, where there's, like, story elements and character elements. I am so bad at that. But ever since I've sort of started writing and had other people reading it, they would tell me, like, you have a really strong voice. And I like your voice. It's, like, a good voice. And I was, like, you know, when I was 19 or whatever, I was, like, I barely know what that means I don't really understand it but then people I think I have heard that before that people are like you talk like you write like I can sort of hear you talking reading your writing um but I don't know how I did it because I'm not even a big talker in real life I don't think like I was always a steel trap in class and my teachers would be like this I can't get I can barely get a word out of this girl. And, like, she says smart things when she talks, but she will not raise her hand. And so I don't know. It's so—I don't know. If I had to take a stab, it would be like I watch a lot of TV. (laughs) So I have a very kind of, like, conversational background, or, like, that's how I'm used to experiencing content and I think I do a lot of rehearsing conversations in my head that might be a big part of it that I'm that's another kind of insecure element so it kind of is a lot of voice quote-unquote practice maybe that might be where it comes from I don't know but it's a really interesting question and I've all like I've wondered myself what (laughs) what the deal is with me in that specific respect
0: I'll just note one part of it that that caught me is that I like in in a lot of your writing, like when you're, let's say, talking about some sort of like faddish, like weightlifting thing that maybe you're like critical of. It doesn't seem like you're like mad at it. You know what I mean? You're not. It's not like a crusade against like bad diet fads and this. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, we all know this is kind of silly, but like we're all here, like we subscribed to a weightlifting substack so we could be made fun of as soon as we would be the ones being made fun of. Maybe that's what the essential thing is. It's like realizing that you're doing something that someone could be making fun of you in the same way that you could be making fun of them.
2: Yeah. I think it's important to cultivate a generosity to yourself, even as I think like maybe also what you're getting at here is like the self-deprecating element, like just sort of hating on something is not even really humor like you can be kind of sarcastic but it's like that's not a a joke whereas I think being self-deprecating has a relatable element to it and I think I try to keep that awareness particularly about fitness stuff especially because I can feel very insecure a lot about like the literal world is ending in so many ways and I'm talking about like lifting weights like what import does this have in the world almost none so it's like it's important like that doesn't mean that I think it's it's ultimately dumb or worthless to talk about obviously because I keep doing it but I try to keep perspective about where this fits in our lives and I think that I guess there's (laughs) humor there maybe this sounds very sad but like
0: I would counterintuitively say getting jacked is going to be more important after the apocalypse.
2: This is a, this topic comes up frequently in different groups of friends, and I have a disappointing number of friends who are like, when the apocalypse really gets going, like I'm I'm cutting it off. I will not survive. I don't want to try and survive. I am a survivalist. I'm ready to like pick everybody up and carry them to safety, and that's my. Perspective on it, but that, like, I agree, no better time to be in good shape than as the apocalypse is coming.
0: Are all niche subcultures just different, um, apocalyptic visions of what the best strategy to survive? Like, gun culture is also about what I'm gonna do after the apocalypse, crypto is about <laughs> what I'm gonna do after the apocalypse. Does anyone have any plans other than like, um, having a hobby that's apocalyptic right now?
2: I think it, yeah, I mean, it's very big now to be thinking about these things in a way that's, it also sort of, I mean, hearing about all these other things feels a bit broken brain. It's like, is lifting really going to save us? Is crypto really going to save us? I don't think so. But this is like how we're coping with the emotional experience of feeling like things are ending as we're trying to fix it. And that's, you know, someone wanted to go out and invent a new hobby. I think this would be worth thinking about is what would appeal to somebody who feels totally out of control because they feel like the world is ending.
0: I mean, I, I only did one year of Boy Scout, but it, it's, you know, the whole like preparedness thing is kind of about how being like a prepper is a form of being a good person and a way to pick up life and character skills, not because like Boy Scouts actually think you're going to have to like rescue someone from a raging river per se.
2: Right. Is this proper prior preparation prevents poor performance? Is that a Boy Scout thing?
0: I, it sounds right. <laughs> I, I don't think I, I'm I didn't get the bad. I'm below that badge rank. Oh, but. my God.
2: Well, yeah, I have like I mean, this is this goes back to my maybe my um, general insecurity about stuff, but I've cultivated a lot of skills. My mom is super handy. I know. And I feel like I'm the handy person in our household. I know. I I know all of this Stuff about how to fix things. I do have kind of an engineering sensibility, interestingly, in me that comes out in those moments when something needs fixing or something's broken. Um, So yeah, I kind of relate to that mindset generally of like preparedness.
0: Okay, we'll join the same Citadel after the fall.
2: (laughs) Yes, yes, that sounds good.
0: Thank you very much for this interview. It was great.
2: Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to the Long Longform Podcast. Thanks to my guest, Casey Johnston. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. This episode was edited by Jackie Sajiko. Thanks to her. Thanks to our intern, Noelle Matier. And thanks to our friends at MailChimp and Vox Media. We'll be back next week.